in the Word of God to Genesis 38. Genesis chapter 38. And it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went in unto her. And she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Kizeb when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife, and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in unto his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. And in process of time the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath, for she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be an harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge, till thou send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it her, and came in unto her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and laid by her veil from her, and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he found her not. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot that was openly by the wayside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. And also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. And Judah said, Let her take it to her, lest we be shamed. Behold, I sent this kid, and thou hast not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth. And let her be burnt. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? And Judah acknowledged them, and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Shelah my son. And he knew her again no more. Now the next four verses are the text for the sermon tonight. I'm just going to read this the one time. And it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand. And the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
one of our occasional family activities on Sunday evenings used to be playing the game Bible Trivia. Bible Trivia, if you've ever played it, is a game of questions of increasing difficulty. And what usually makes the questions more difficult is how remote and obscure the answers to the questions are. Everyone knows that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a manger. Everyone knows that Jesus died on a cross. But do you know who had the longest name in the Bible? We were amazed as kids when Dad had the answer to that question right on the tip of his tongue. Meher Shalahashbaz, second son of Isaiah. Well, this story at the end of Genesis 38 seems about as remote and obscure as you can get. What is the name of the child born to Tamar, who became the heir of Jacob's, second, of Jacob's son, Judah? Perez. If you knew that piece of information before we began this series, I think you'll go a long ways in Bible trivia. But this story and the event it records is far from trivial. Remember, the book of Genesis, Generations, is a book of birth stories. It begins with the birth story of the heavens and the earth and of the first humans from the hand of God. Then it goes on to tell of the generations of Adam and then the generations of Noah and then the generations of Shem and then the generations of Abraham. And the story of Abraham reaches its critical mass when Isaac is born in fulfillment of God's promise that he would have a son by Sarah. And then when Isaac is born, it becomes the birth story of Jacob and Esau and the struggle of the two infant nations in Rebekah's womb. Well, here at the end of Genesis 38, we have another birth story, not as well known as those other birth stories, but so we have it. And it's really the final birth story in the book of Genesis that is of consequence. Genesis does go on to tell us about the sons of Joseph and the generations of Jacob's other sons to an extent, but it is through the birth of this son, mentioned in this text, that the covenant line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be traced. And it is through the birth of this son that redemption will be accomplished and come to the people of God. Such is the greatness of the significance of this somewhat obscure individual in the Bible, whose name is Perez. And that's what I call our attention to tonight. Perez, first we will see that this child was a child who broke forth in his birth, was born in a breach. Secondly, that the birth of this child represented a renewed legacy for Judah and really also for Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. And then finally, how this represented personally redemption for Judah, whom we have seen in this series so far was a pretty unsavory character up to this point. Perez, first a child breaking forth, secondly a legacy renewed, finally Judah's redemption. Perez was born out of an immense struggle. Tamar was in travail, according to verse 27, and it came to pass in the time of her travail that, behold, twins were in her womb. And there was no epidural. And there was not a clean hospital bed and medical staff or a surgeon ready to do a C-section. Just a young woman laboring and contracting in her travail with the help of a midwife. In this travail, Tamar joined the ranks of all mothers since Eve, to whom God said these words in Genesis 3, verse 16. I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Tamar's travail and birth, of course, was a direct consequence of her seducing of Judah and of Judah's going in unto her, thinking that she was a harlot. 
When Judah went into Tamar under the pretense that she was a harlot, God was at work. God was at work secretly and silently fusing together cells in the darkness of Tamar's womb to create new life. Twin boys. Tamar's methods were the methods of a Canaanite woman of this world. As we have seen, they were clearly wrong. She is not blameless in this matter. God nevertheless saw what was in Tamar's heart as she began to meddle in the life of Judah. There was a struggle going on there. There was a discontent in Tamar's heart with her evil environment, the environment of Canaan. There was a hunger and a thirst in her heart for righteousness, the righteousness of God and His kingdom. There was a heart that was searching for Christ, yearning to see the promises of God fulfilled, even though she hardly knew anything about those promises, hearing about them only secondhand from Judah, who had left his father's house. But she knew enough about it. And she began to struggle and to seek. And now the struggle in Tamar's heart that produced the action of seeking to bear the child of, Judah's, of Judah was bearing the fruit of labor and travail. But it wasn't only Tamar who was struggling. There was also a struggle going on within her womb. There is a little piece of evidence in the text to demonstrate the reality of the struggle that was carrying on within Tamar's womb. It's one of the most obscure and interesting little tidbits of information in the book of Genesis. As Tamar labors and travails, a small hand emerges into the open air. The midwife sees it. And to ensure that the child was born first would receive his rights, she takes a little scarlet thread and ties it around his wrist. But then, rather than the rest of that child emerging and being born, that little hand is withdrawn and goes back into Tamar's womb. And Tamar continues to labor and to travail. And eventually a child comes out into the world, a whole child, not just a part of him. But the child who is born does not have a scarlet thread tied around his wrist. Not that the thread was lost. For a baby follows that first baby. And lo and behold, there Tied around his wrist is that scarlet thread. The surprise of the midwife is captured by her words and then by the name that was given to this child who first came out. Verse 29, Hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Pharez, which means a breach or to break forth. Now we can only imagine the nature of the struggle that was going on between these two infants in the darkness. Evidently something supernatural was going on here because I think we all understand this is not normal. Even when twins are born, this is not normal. What the result is that Pharez broke forth. He came out before his brother who was trying to come out Put his hand out into the air, but Pharez emerges as the firstborn. Now, when you look at this story, there's an echo here of another story in the book of Genesis. There's a parallel of a different struggle that was going on in another woman's womb some years before this. Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, twin boys in her womb. And when those babies were born, that struggle was ongoing. The tiny Jacob, who came out second, came out still firmly clinging to the heel of his brother Esau. And that was a foreshadowing of what was to come for these brothers. And even more importantly than the individuals themselves, Jacob and Esau, the nations who would be born of them. Two nations are in thy womb, God said to Rebekah, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. 
And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Genesis 25, verse 23. There was a battle going on in Rebekah's womb. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right there in Rebekah's womb. And though ultimately it was the younger, the second born, Jacob, whom God loved and blessed, he came out second. He was not the firstborn. Now I say there's an echo of that earlier story here. Twins struggling in their mother's womb to be born and to be born first. But notice there's also a progression where Jacob came out clinging to his brother's heel in his effort to be born first and yet failing to be born first. It's different here. Pharez emerges. He breaks forth. His brother put his hand forth and then withdraws. But Pharez breaks forth. And he's given the name. Breaking forth. Breach. Pharez. And he's named with the name of the firstborn son. Now part of the significance of this story is that it reflects the great struggle of God's people through the ages, in the the search for Jesus Christ. And the waiting of God's people and the longing and the yearning of God's people for the coming of that seed of the woman that God promised. Who is Tamar? Well, Tamar is an individual person who has significance in herself. But you could also say that Tamar stands, in a sense, for the whole church In the Old Testament period, the whole church in the Old Testament period, think about that church. That church could appear very pious, very straight-laced, very much having things together. We are Israel. We are God's people, a nation set apart, set apart from those Philistines, set apart from those heathen. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple. We have the ceremonies and the priests. Such an appearance of holiness. Such an appearance of gravity. This is God's nation. What is the truth of Israel in the Old Testament? Truth is that Israel was a people groping around in the darkness. Surrounding their city which did indeed have the temple in the center of it, but surrounding their city with idols and groves, giving their sons and their daughters over to heathen spouses to become citizens of the world, worshiping God with their lips while drifting far from Him in their hearts and far from His altar, prostituting herself. Prostituting herself. That's not my word. That's the Bible's own word in his description of the church in that age, prostituting herself to the very nations and their idols that she was supposed to be separate from, that she even justified her existence as being separate from. That was Israel. More often appearing as a city of Canaan and a whore than as the bride of Christ. And yet Christ was in her. Christ was in her. Always He was there. And there was a struggle going on. There was a battle going on. A battle, yes, between the elect and the reprobate. A battle between the righteous and the wicked. Those who believed and those who did not believe. But there was also a battle, a struggle going on at the level of the heart and the mind and the soul of every elect child of God who existed in that era. There was a hungering and a thirsting for the kingdom wherein righteousness dwells, where all will be right. There was a laboring and a travailing, like a mother whose contractions are progressively intensified. Again, that's not my picture. It's the picture that the Bible gives to represent that era in the history of God's covenant. Revelation 12. 
The church in Revelation 12 is represented as a mother. A mother who is in the pangs of travail to give birth to a child. A child who will be ascending up to the right hand of God. You know who that child is. It's the Christ child. But she's laboring, laboring and travailing, contracting in her pain. And there's a great struggle going on, a great fight, a great battle as she labors to give birth. Above her, a dragon, a great dragon called the devil and Satan, the great gaping mouthful of teeth ready to devour that child the instant he emerges from the womb. That was the church. In the Old Testament, just like Tamar here, laboring, travailing. But it's not just a picture of the church in general. And it's not just a a picture of of the Old Testament. But we can take this picture and we can apply it right, right here. The level of our own experience. Tamar stands for you. She stands for me. What are we by nature? We're groping around in the dark, confused, desiring and seeking the kingdom, and yet still our life, our thoughts, our activity reflects who we are by our birth. We have the flesh, we have the old man of sin, and we fall into sin. And even when we seek to do what's right, Even when our motivations are correct, our methods are not always savory or correct. And even our best works are polluted with sin. And we labor. We labor and we travail as we live in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. As we struggle with principalities and powers in the world around us. As we struggle with The old man, that old nature that is constantly shrinking away from God and His truth as we struggle with the devil who is always there hovering over our heads. That great dragon hasn't gone anywhere. His mouth is gaping wide, full of teeth, ready to devour the seed of life that has been planted in our hearts. And yet Christ is there. And He's coming. He's coming. That's what the struggle is all about. This was not Tamar's struggle. At least not first of all. Yes, she was laboring. She was travailing. But it was not her struggle first of all. It was the struggle of Christ who was in her. Who was in the child that was growing in her womb and now emerging to the birth. Who was in the generations of Pharaoh's It was the struggle of Christ who in the Old Testament era was coming. Coming through the birth of Isaac in fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Coming through the birth of Jacob who labored to be first, firstborn. But who failed to be born first. But now the coming of Christ draws a little bit nearer. There's a progression as Pharaoh leaps ahead of his brother, emerges from the womb triumphant to receive the rights of the firstborn son. A small victory for the church of that era as she labored and labored in the coming of Christ. But always it was Christ who was coming, coming, and He wanted to come. He wanted to come. He was... I don't want to say trying to come because that would imply that he wasn't able or that there was something that could have prevented him from coming. But he was struggling to come. He wanted to come, to come quickly. That's what we have to see in this breaking forth of Pharaoh. He wanted it. He wanted to be first. Already as a little child, the seed of Christ that was in that little child, Pharaoh, wanted to be born. Wanted to have the rights of the firstborn. Oh, I know that the unbeliever looks at this story and he scoffs. 
And he says about this story in the Bible, well, what a ridiculous story. All this story indicates is that the people who wrote the Bible don't know how babies are born because this is physically impossible that it would happen this way. If this happened in the womb of a, of a mother, she would, she would surely die because of the complications that would inevitably be involved with this. What a ridiculous story. But that's because the unbeliever doesn't know Christ. And the unbeliever doesn't know God and His ways. Yes, it's an unusual, strange event, a supernatural act in which this child broke forth ahead of his brother. How, how did that happen? But should we expect anything less, beloved? Anything less than that there would be strange, supernatural occurrences, signs, things that make us say, wow, why did that happen? Should we expect anything less when something so significant is taking place, something so momentous as the coming of the Son of God Himself into human flesh? He's coming through this event. He's coming and He's saying, I want to come. I'm eager to come. I'm eager to emerge onto the scene of history as the firstborn and as your elder brother. I'm eager to come and to go to war against the devil and his whole dominion. I'm eager, eager even to go to the cross. Yes. Not that he enjoyed the suffering, oh no. But he wanted to come, wanted to bear our reproach, wanted to bear our suffering to redeem us because He loves us. He loved Tamar. He loved that woman struggling in the Old Testament, laboring and travailing, giving herself over to this awful act of seduction and prostitution in her misunderstanding. Nevertheless, the Lord saw her, saw her heart, loved her, wanted to come to redeem her. So He breaks forth. He breaks forth. I'm coming. I'm not going to let anything hold me back. And he's given that name Pharez. But now we need to zoom out a little bit. We've seen what happened. Strange, interesting event. But what does this mean in the broader story of Judah? That's what the series is about. The series isn't necessarily about Pharez or about Tamar even, necessarily, but it's about Judah. And how does this fit? Well, the birth of Pharez is the renewal of Judah's legacy, which we have seen pretty clearly was just about obliterated in Judah's unbelief and sin. And it was a renewal of Judah's legacy in a couple of ways. More immediately... The birth of Pharez and his brother Zara. Well, just think about this for a minute. Judah had two sons, three sons, by the birth of his first wife, the daughter of Shua. And what happened to the first of those two sons, Ur and Onan? They were wicked in the sight of the Lord. Wicked partly due to Judah's failure to bring them up in the Lord. And they were struck dead by God. What an awful thing. An awful thing for Judah to contemplate. My sons perished. Well, now, two more sons are given to Judah. Perez and Zara from Tamar. A godly seed. It's just like, remember earlier in the book of Genesis, you have the situation with Cain and Abel. And Abel clearly was understood to be the seed. It, it will be through Abel. He's a godly man. He understands the counsel of God. He brings a sacrifice of blood. And then he's struck dead by Cain. Seems like God's will is being overthrown. And what a horrible thing for these parents to contemplate. And then the Lord gives them Seth, a child, to, take, to fill the void of Abel. Well, Judah's given Perez and Zara. Now, Perez is not a character... Neither is Zara, about whom we know much from the Bible. But the lack of details about Pharez might say more than we think. 
We were given all kinds of details about the life of Judah. And what did that tell us about him? Not many good things. What those details spoke of was a man who was spiraling, spiraling deeper and deeper into the abyss of unbelief and immorality. We were given some details about Ur and Onan. And what did those details tell us about them? Not good things. Just enough to explain why it was that God struck them dead in His judgment. But we aren't given details about Pharaoh's other than that he was born. And then there's one other place that says a little bit about him. In the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 12. The context there is that Boaz has just secured Ruth to be his wife and that he would redeem the household of Elimelech. And then the elders are all there to witness what went on. And they say to Boaz... Let thy house be like the house of Pharez, who happened to be Boaz's ancestor. But let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So we gather from all of this the lack of details about Pharez's life, that he was in fact a man of God. He was a man about whom the only thing it said in the Bible is it would be a blessing if your family was like his family. The silence, in other words, in many ways, is a commendation. Unlike Jacob, who was always taking matters into his own hands so that he had to learn the hard way. And unlike Judah, who slid so far from God that he had to be dragged back into the covenant, as it were, by the scruff of his neck, Pharaoh was content to live by his faith, to live as a child of the covenant and quietly to serve his God. And we don't know much about him. Maybe he was the beneficiary of the struggles of his father and grandfather and of his mother as he heard their stories and learned from their mistakes and from their failures and walked, therefore, in faith and faithfulness. But there's no ugly details written down about the life of Pharaoh, and that's all part of what I mean when I say the legacy of Judah is being renewed. If it was such a terrible loss when Ur and Onan perished, and it surely was, especially later on in Judah's life when he reflected back on his wickedness and the consequences of that, well, the Lord gave him these twin boys. And what a blessing that must have been to him as he drew on in his years. Sons, children, walking in truth. Isn't that what the Bible says? There's no greater joy than that that my children walk in truth. Judah had that. But there is a deeper and more important sense in which the legacy of Judah was renewed by the birth of Pharaoh. The devil was laboring. We talked about Tamar laboring in the church in the Old Testament laboring, but the devil was also laboring, laboring, seeking to prevent the seed of the woman from ever being born, wasn't he? And when you read Genesis 38, what does it look like? It looks like he almost pulled it off. Throughout the story up to that point, he was picking off the sons of Jacob one by one. Reuben. What did the devil do to Reuben? Led him off into disgrace. He went up to his father's bed and committed incest. Then Simeon and Levi provoked to such violence as to bring reproach upon the whole household of Jacob. So he had to move to an entirely different area. Joseph, what happened to Joseph? He's gone in chains in Egypt. And then there's Judah just about swallowed up by the world, deliberately joining his legacy to the Canaanites. If Judah knew, he didn't care that his actions had been setting up a barrier to the coming of Christ. And that was the labor of the devil. Judah was the devil's ally, the devil's tool. But God was aware of the devil's schemes. And he thwarted them. He thwarted them. And he did so in the most surprising and unexpected and unlooked for way. Right at the point where the battle seems lost. Right at the point where evil seems triumphant. This woman Tamar inserts herself into Judah's life. And a child is born. Pharaoh's. And from Pharez, Hezron, 
and from Hezron, Ram, and from Ram, Aminadab, and from Aminadab, Nashon, and from Nashon, Salmon, and from Salmon, Boaz, and from Boaz, Obed, and from Obed, Jesse, and from Jesse, David, and from David, in his generations, Jesus Christ. From Perez, from Judah. The reason I wanted to preach a series on Judah is right here, beloved, right here. It's because of this question. Why did God do it this way? Why did Jesus Christ come this way through the line of Judah? Why not from Reuben, who despite his failures and sins was nevertheless Jacob's firstborn? Why not from Joseph, that man whom we all look up to as such a godly example, who rather than go into a prostitute, fled from fornication, fled from Potiphar's wife? Why Judah? I believe the answer to that question is because God doesn't think the way that we think. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. If God wanted to trace the line of redemption through the generations of Joseph, He could have done it. God could have brought Jesus Christ into the world in any number of ways, but He wanted to come this way. He wanted Him to come through this man. A man whom we have seen was so despicable. And through this child then, born through an act of incest and adultery, Why? Well, one of the reasons is to convince us without a shadow of a doubt it's not us. We do not produce Christ. He comes almost in spite of us. He comes. Now I say spite, that's not really the right way to say it because spite is hatred. And the Lord doesn't come to us in His hatred. He comes to us in love, but He comes in spite of us. In spite of everything we are. In spite of everything we do. Because everything we are and everything we do is to screw it up. To make it almost impossible to tarnish and to destroy our legacies. To tarnish and destroy ourselves. That's what we do. We do not produce Christ. He has to come. He comes. He comes from right in the middle of us all as one of us, born from the womb of a woman. But He comes. He comes. We do not bring Him. We do not create Him. We do not let Him come. He comes. That's why God wanted it to be this way through this man. I think He did it this way also for this reason. So that we will always have hope. This story demonstrates, proves that things that are broken can be mended again. Sinners who are lost, and I mean lost, can be found again. No one as such is outside the reach of the redeeming grace of the Almighty God on account of their failures or their sins. This story proves it. How did this God come into the world in order to dwell among us? Was it not from the womb of a woman who prostituted herself to a man who was a liar and a murderer and a cheat? That's his ancestry. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he comes this way is not because he approves of prostitution or deception or murder or anything that was going on in the lives of Judah and Tamar. The reason he comes this way is because He has the power to heal, and He wants us to know that. He has the power to restore, to renew. 
He has that power. Are you going to look at the people around you? People out there in the world? The Canaanites? Sinners? Wicked men of this world and say, well, because of this or that sin, they're unreachable. Grace can never reach those people. Look how hard they are. You're wrong if you think that way. You're wrong. It's a lie. A lie that does not understand Jesus Christ or His gospel. Are you going to look in the church where we do see evil? Where we do see hypocrisy? Where men like Judah exist and live? And are you going to say, once a sinner, always a sinner? Those people are irredeemable. Those Judas. That would be wrong. That would show a lack of understanding of the gospel of grace. That says that Jesus Christ came into the world sinners to save, of whom I am chief. Paul said that. Paul, who persecuted the church. Are you going to look in your own heart? Are you going to look in your own life where you see failure after failure, sin after sin, weakness after weakness, disappointment after disappointment? And are you going to say, there's no grace for someone like me? There's no love of God for someone like me. How could God love someone like me? Such a terrible sinner. Such a wretched person. Is that how you're going to think? You're wrong. And you've been missing the point of everything you hear from the pulpit if that's the way you think. The Word of God says, look at this child breaking forth. Look at this Pharez. Look at Christ coming in and through him despite all the ugliness of Judah and Tamar. Look at that. And repent of your unbelief. And quit all this mournful navel-gazing and self-loathing. And fix your heart, mind, and soul on Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ who came into this world to save sinners. To give them a legacy. To renew their place in the kingdom of God. So we come to Judah's redemption. It's not just Judah who was redeemed, by the way, but it was also Tamar. Read the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3 specifically, the line of Christ. And already in the third verse of the book of Matthew, actually, sorry, Matthew chapter 1. And already in the third verse of the book of Matthew, you're going to find the name of Tamar. Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Tamar thus joins the ranks of Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, the other three women who are named in the line of Christ, women who are part of this great struggle of labor and travail in the Old Testament church. And all four of them, women, who were drawn from the nations of the Gentiles and incorporated into the covenant of Christ. Women who were saved in childbearing, not because they fulfilled a duty by having children, but because they gave birth to the Christ, the seed of the woman who redeemed them, who redeemed Tamar. Tamar, that woman of Canaan, that deceiver, that seducer of her father-in-law, redeemed. Restored to life, incorporated into the line of Christ, and united to him. Tamar also was redeemed. But Judah was redeemed. Judah was redeemed. Sometimes you have, as a preacher, an insight that comes after you've already written up your notes and thought through what you have written down. And I hadn't thought of this before, but in the context of the story, you have Ur and Onan 
specifically Onan, who failed in his duty to raise up a seed and to act as a redeemer for his brother Ur. And because he refused to do that, he was slain by the Lord. Well, who ends up becoming the father of the child, Perez? I'm not being clear here. That's why I told you that I didn't have this written down. But there was a fulfillment of what was called the Leveret Law. The law of the brother-in-law was supposed to raise up seed to his brother in order to redeem his brother's name and to preserve his name in the covenant. Onan failed to do that. He was struck dead by the Lord. Tamar sought after a seed, and now that seed is brought forth. Perez, Judah's redemption. In other words, his name that was lost, lost through the death of Ur and Onan, is going to continue on through this child. It was personal redemption for him, in other words. His name and his place was preserved in the generations of the covenant. And that changed everything for him. Because he began to taste and see the goodness of God in redemption right there. Yes, we saw that he was brought to repentance. He was brought to repentance. At the end of verse 26, he acknowledged the staff and the signet. We saw what that meant for him personally. But redemption isn't the same as repentance. Redemption is the payment and it is the restoring of your name god gave that to judah through the birth of this child and then everything began to change for judah and you can imagine what that must have been like for him to hold these twin boys these children in his arms what a changed man he was. Yes, he raised them up in the fear of the Lord. He, he, he acted as the father that he wasn't to his previous sons. You might say there was a redemption there, but, but in those children was his legacy. It was his, his name. It was his place in the covenant. Still there. And it was Christ. Christ who was in that child, Pharaoh, born from his own flesh and blood. So, beloved, we mustn't ever give up hope. We mustn't ever say, I'm too far gone. There's no return for me. There's no redemption for me. If there was ever a man to say such things, it was Judah. If there was ever a woman to say such things, it was Tamar. But these are the ones, Tamar and Judah. God designated them as the father and the mother to bring forth this child, Perez, and to bring forth his son. And they saw in that son salvation, right? In a type and in a shadow, salvation. We don't see it in a type and a shadow anymore. Unlike Judah and Tamar, who lived in their time and place, we get to see what happened afterwards. And we get to see how out of Pharaoh's came David and how out of David came Jesus Christ. And we get to see Jesus Christ being born not only, but growing up, living, suffering, dying on a cross. We get to see all of that in the pages of Scripture. We get to know that. And we get to see Him doing that for us. Right? Don't ever say, there's no hope for me. Don't ever say, I've done too much. I can't be redeemed. No. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at redemption fulfilled and accomplished in the cross. And believe. Believe in Him. And remember this too. He's coming again. We talked about him coming in the Old Testament, coming through the births of these children, coming in his generations. Well, he's coming again. 
the labor and the struggle, it all continues. We experience that in the church. Everything that happened in the life of Judah and Tamar, this is our experience. The struggle in the church, this is our experience. But He's still coming. He's coming again. When He comes the final time, He's going to redeem not only Judah and Tamar and individuals, but the whole world. We sang of that, that kingdom in Psalter 198. The blessings of Messiah's reign. Like copious rains in time of dearth, so shall His gracious coming be. He's coming. Believe that. Have hope. Believe in the power of redemption that was there already in this little child born to Judah, Perez. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we, we give Thee thanks. For we see that this is all of Thy hand. We could never produce Jesus Christ. We could never bring Him forth. He must come. And so He did. He came. He came through the generations of Judah. He came through Perez. And He came as our Redeemer. We pray, strengthen our faith. And O oh Father, whatever our situation may be today, conscious of our sinfulness, of our weakness, let us not live as those who have no hope. Let us not say, this isn't for me. It can't be for me. How could it be for me when I'm such a wretched sinner? But let us have faith. Let the Spirit fill us with that faith in, the, in Christ so that we may hope in redemption. And we pray, O oh Father, that redemption and the joy of it will be what characterizes everything in our lives, motivates the whole way we look at one another and the whole way we look at life and at the world. Thou art a great God, a great Savior, and we have a great redemption and a great kingdom that we belong to. Strengthen us, O Father, in the beauty of it, and in the joy of it, and in the strength that comes from the knowledge of it. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. 